Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we are talking about Pakistan. We're going to ask whether we in the West are paying enough attention to the place that many US presidents have called one of the most dangerous countries in the world that keep them worrying at night. Are they right? Pakistan's domestic politics often appear to outside observers as pretty wild. Just this week, Imran Khan, Pakistan's former prime minister, but known to millions before that as one of the world's best cricketers, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for leaking state secrets. That is just days before the country is due to go to the polls. The election is set for the 8th of February, but there are questions even now about whether that vote will happen at all. And beyond the headlines, there are plenty of reasons as to why we should all pay more attention to Pakistan. It has nuclear weapons. It is a democracy, but frequently undermined and indeed sometimes run by its armed forces. It's where bin Laden was eventually found and where radicalization and terrorism persists, both under and beyond the state's control. So as ever, the questions are, why is Pakistan like this and what is its future going to look like and what can it people there and those outside do to help it. Well, I have a terrific panel. Joining me in the studio, I've got Chitij Bajpayee, our Senior Research Fellow for South Asia. Welcome. Hi, Bronwyn. Good to be back. Yes, I shouldn't say welcome. You're a regular on this podcast. Joining us down the line is Fazana Sheikh, who's an Associate Fellow with our program as well. Welcome. Thank you, Bronwyn. Lovely to be here. Thank you. And I'm glad to see your recent uh, write-up in The Guardian, which uh, notes absolutely properly that you're author of Making Sense of Pakistan, one of the things that we do want to dive into today. And also joining us as well is Maria Afsal, a fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely delighted. Well, let's just start with what's been happening this week in the run-up to the election. Farzana, I wonder if you could take us into that. Suddenly we've had this jail sentence, described as draconian by some, against Imran Khan, who not very long ago was leading Pakistan, and the front runner uh, in these elections appears to be Nawaz Sharif, who not very long ago was barred from politics for life. What is going on? Well, what is going on, really, is a game of musical chairs, to put it bluntly. You know, we've been here before in the sense that Sharif, who was once the military establishment's favorite, its so-called blue-eyed boy, held power and then fell out with the military and was imprisoned and then exiled. Uh, And much the same has happened to Imran Khan, who came in as prime minister in 2018. And I think it's now widely accepted that he did so with the help and the support of the military, but he too fell out with the military and is now suffering much the same fate as his predecessor. As you say, it's kind of musical chairs. I remember talking to Nawaz Sharif in one of his periods of exile when he was in a flat just off Oxford Street in London, and he was at this gigantic screen showing Pakistani television the whole time was raging at it that he couldn't go back. Then he went back, carried on the shoulders of his supporters. I remember talking to Imran Khan in Islamabad, uh, saying, well, I'm going to run against all these corrupt politicians. Um, Now he's been accused of that. Mattia, are we looking at musical chairs or are we looking at stability? Oh, we're certainly looking at at musical chairs. uh, And, you know, this is par for the course uh, for Pakistani politics. It's part of the 
establishment, which is really a euphemism for the military. It's part of their playbook where, uh, you know, uh, the incumbent politician always kept weak, is then ousted with the help of the opposition. The opposition is brought into power and then the cycle repeats. I would just add that this time, I think Imran Khan has, you know, who's been at the receiving end of the military's ire, has received perhaps a greater crackdown than Nawaz Sharif and Benazir Bhutto, uh, another major leader, did in the past. And that's because he took on a zero-sum confrontation with Pakistan's military. And so his party has been largely dismantled in the run-up to the election in a way that both uh, Nawaz Sharif's party and Benazir's party in the past had not been. So would you accept what Fasana said about him coming to power really with the help of the army, but then falling out with the army, if you like. Yes. So I think he definitely had the help of the army in, you know, starting uh, in 2011 when he was seen as sort of the third, uh, you know, the alternative to these two uh, leaders that the army had seen as as corrupt, you know, Nawaz Sharif and Benazir Bhutto. However, I, I think in 2018, and after that, Imran Khan also managed to build a base uh, for, for himself. And that's a youthful uh, sort of middle class uh, demographic uh, that does support him. And so so while, you know, the playing field was tilted in his favor, he all also managed to build a popular support base um, that is certainly quite unhappy with the way things have unfolded now. Yeah. So what went wrong? He fell out uh, with the military when he tried to push back uh, against what they wanted. And really, it's actually something quite simple. Um, uh, It was uh, the transfer of the head of the inter-services intelligence, the ISI, in October 2021. He did not want his choice of uh, the ISI chief transferred out to another position. General Bajwa, the chief of army staff, wanted it. There was sort of a standoff. And ultimately, that led to the break that then led to a vote of no confidence with the help of Pakistan's opposition parties that ousted him in the spring of 2022. So, Chitaj, let's stay with this question of whether we're looking at an odd kind of stability or whether we're looking at a real vulnerability, a fragility that can see Pakistan getting more and more uncontrollable, even for the leaders who happened to be in the hot seat at the time and a source of great worry to its neighbours, its people and the world. Yeah, I think these concerns about Pakistan are definitely uh, not new. I mean, it's uh, there are several structural problems that, that Pakistan faces. Key among it is the role of the military in politics. Uh, you know, the Pakistani military has assumed power in three coups. None of the governments, none of the prime ministers have ever completed a full five-year term in office. This is since 1947. Yes, although it's interesting to note that this will mark the first time that the country has voted for a civilian government three times in a row. Uh, So the military really believes that it can hold the country together, and whether it rules directly or indirectly, it wants to have this final say on matters of foreign policy and national security. And I think this dual control has has been the the source of of the instability that we see in this country. And uh, increasingly, we're also seeing the, the military potentially playing a role in areas of economic policy. Uh, And I don't think that there's any sign that that is uh, about to change or that uh, these structural problems are going to be overcome with this next election. Okay, so we have this this hybrid democracy, as Fazana, I think you've called it. But do you think that this is stable or is it getting worse? And I guess what I have in mind, what I'd love to hear from you, is the proportion of support for radical parties. Because it seemed to me one of the strengths of Pakistan in the past was that way back, decades ago, that was always very low, is a few percent. 
but decades have passed and that has changed. Yes, indeed. Uh, in fact, I think it would be an error of judgment to describe Pakistan as a as a democracy. A democracy, it certainly is not. It's better described, as I said, as a hybrid uh, democracy. Now, you have raised the question of militant groups and radical Islamists, and they do indeed form part of the political landscape uh, as we know it. But I think it needs to be said, well, a couple of things need to be said. One is that religious parties generally, historically, have performed poorly. And by all accounts, according to latest reports, they're not going to do very much better in these forthcoming polls. This is not to say that religious sentiments play no part in the way people vote in Pakistan. Uh, They do. But I think what's interesting about Pakistan, and Imran Khan is, of course, a case in point, though Sharif too, is the way in which mainstream parties have appropriated, you know, the religious discourse of the religious right. And uh, in some sense, uh, through that process, have neutralized uh, that religious discourse. I mean, Imran Khan himself, made no pretense of the fact that he subscribed to what can only be described as an Islamist worldview. Adia, how would you describe these qualities of Pakistan to someone who had never been there? You've got areas of stability and strength and even economic strength, and then you have other parts of the country that are very, very different. Right. I, I think Pakistan, you know, th- there's a there's a great book on Pakistan, uh, Pakistan, a hard country. And it, it is really a hard and complex country, with, which is multifaceted. And so I would not describe it to anyone in one dimension. So, you know, while it has struggled with extremism, that is only one part of the story. Just on Islamists, um, you know, they do very poorly in elections because um, the voter doesn't think that an Islamist party will uh, be able to deliver for them, but they are able to exercise huge amounts of street power. And, uh, you know, they can bring out their supporters onto the street. And then you see mainstream parties, the the incumbent political parties catering to the demands of the Islamists, uh, you know, whether it comes to Pakistan's blasphemy laws or other uh, areas. Pakistan at this point, to me, um, there was a glimmer of hope for its democracy post-2008, you know, when sort of the Musharraf era ended in sort of ignominy, I would say. It seemed that the army, you know, had realized overt control was not something it wanted, but it also seemed to be stepping back a little bit. And so we actually saw two governments completing their terms in office, though the prime ministers uh, did not. I would say that that period has now ended. You know, we enter the 2024 election with the military essentially in charge of the country. It's holding the reins of the of the country. It's increasingly overt because it's got its hand in economic matters. It's actually part of the Army Amendment Act of 2023 and, uh, you know, in, in foreign and security policy, of course, as well. And it's, uh, you know, the muscle that it's exercised over politics, again, increasingly uh, in the in the open. So what is the sort of the hope of Pakistan? I would say it's unrealized potential, unrealized economic potential. It's demographics, which can both hurt it, you know, sort of a very young population, but can also help it. But it needs the right kind of leadership to harness that potential. And I don't see a country that is run by a military being able to do that, frankly. So Fazana, how much should we look at these elections? Do they matter? 
they matter to the extent that any ruling dispensation needs legitimacy. But whether or not they spell stability is altogether a different matter. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that they are a necessary, but certainly not a sufficient condition for stability. And that is because for someone like me, who's been following Pakistan politics for many, many years, I cannot recall a political scene quite as polarized as the one that we are witnessing at the present time. And it has to be said that Imran Khan must bear a large part of the blame for having contributed to this polarization. Because, of course, under his government, you know, people became accustomed to, to witnessing debates in parliament whenever he chose to appear, that is, where the opposition was sort of routinely cast as thieves and looters. So building a national consensus to tackle some of the huge problems faced by this country has become extremely difficult. And I don't really see a way out of this mess, even after the elections, unless there is some attempt to forge a national consensus between political parties. And it's interesting that Madiha talked about a moment of optimism after 2008. I would say that moment of optimism actually happened in 2006, when the Pakistan People's Party and the Pakistan Muslim League, led by Sharif, signed what was known as a Charter of Democracy, uh, where they agreed to settle differences between themselves, rather than looking to the military as the arbiter. It does feel like a long time ago. Chita, just looking at this, if these elections happen, if, supposing, Nawaz Sharif wins, what then? What are you looking at? Well, I think there's several you know, potential uh, watch points uh, after the election. I mean, I think the key point is, will the elections be regarded as credible? I think that that is the first point. If you have a uh, low voter turnout, if you're seeing signs of electoral manipulation and that undermines the uh, the credibility of the incoming administration. Also, if it's obviously a shaky coalition government, then that would also make it difficult to pass some of the more politically sensitive reforms, You know, whether it be expanding the tax base or privatizing loss-making state-owned enterprises or even some sort of outreach or rapprochement with India. Uh, I think that those are going to be some of the key watch points. The other point to, to keep in mind is the, the, this this period and this transition of power that we're seeing right now, it doesn't end with the election. We're also going to see a change in, in the chief justice of the Supreme Court by November of this year. And we're also going to see a change in the army chief uh, next year. So I think this will also have an impact on the policy trajectory. So I, I think there are several potential watch points uh, after the election that we need to keep our eyes on. And how concerned are you? And we have, you know, as I said at the beginning, in the back of all our minds, Pakistan has, um, for example, nuclear weapons. And that does not, if I can put it, uh, contribute to the stability of the area. Obviously, the the fact that it's a nuclear weapon state is is a point of concern. But I, and I think the risks are exaggerated to a degree. Pakistan has taken several steps in the last few years to Im- improve its nuclear security regime, uh, including improving the regulatory framework for, for securing nuclear materials and facilities uh, or unauthor- unauthorized access to nuclear weapons. Just in, in July of last year, the Washington-based Nuclear Threat Initiative released its nuclear security index, which showed that Pakistan had made consistent improvements. Uh, it doesn't absolve it of its irresponsible behavior in the past. So, for instance, the symbiotic relationship that we saw 
uh, between Pakistan's nuclear program and, and North Korea's ballistic missile program under the AQ Khan network. Uh, but it does show that there have been signs of uh, improvement in Pakistan's nuclear command and control structures. Thanks for that. By symbiotic, you, Pakistan gave North Korea quite a bit of help. Yes, so they both gave each other quite a bit yeah, of help. Yeah, yes. yeah, all right. Perfectly Sym- symbiotic. Well, let's use that as a reason to pivot and talk about Pakistan and its neighbors and its uh, friends and alliances and and enemies. Madhya, I wonder if I could start with you and just ask you directly. You're sitting in Washington, D.C. Does Pakistan still look like a friend of the U.S.? Well, I, I would say that Pakistan's relationship with the U.S. is certainly different from how it's been, uh, you know, it was uh, post-2001. And I think part of this is uh, the Biden administration's unique approach to Pakistan. You know, I've argued that the, the Biden administration has had a, a two-track relationship with Pakistan, and that's basically complete indifference from the White House. You know, there's no engagement whatsoever from the White House, no call from Biden to a Pakistani prime minister, either Imran Khan or Shabazz Sharif. Uh, and that might be the first time a U.S. president in the history of U.S.-Pakistan bilateral relations has not called a Pakistani leader. So no relationship with the White House, but, uh, you know, a, a solid relationship uh, with the State Department that is trying to find new pegs and a new basis post the U.S. war in Afghanistan. For much of the last 40 years, the, the relationship between the two countries has been defined by Afghanistan, and that's had both ups and downs. Uh, but it was an important relationship because of the, the, the U.S. war in Afghanistan and before that, the, the Soviet-Afghan war, uh, in which, of course, the United States was um, involved as well. But post-2021, that basis for the relationship uh, obviously vanished, and now there's a counterterrorism component. Uh, but the State Department is trying to find, you know, sort of an economic basis and, and other, uh, you know, sort of looking at climate change um, uh, and other forms of sort of investment in Pakistan. So it's it's a two-track uh, relationship that, from Pakistan's perspective, Pakistan would see itself as having been demoted. Yes, I think that's a good way of putting it. And one of the downs in the relationship uh, no doubt the discovery by the U.S. of bin Laden on a Pakistani soil rather close to a military base. Chitaj, what about the relationship with China? And you've written a great deal and researched a great deal on China and India. So, uh, I mean, officially China and Pakistan remain, you know, all-weather friends and, and they maintain this uh, and maintaining a cordial relationship with China. But I would also argue uh, Arab Gulf states remains important for Islamabad as uh, as these countries are important sources would of financial. Say, would you say particularly uh, Saudi Arabia? Particularly Saudi Arabia. I mean, they're obviously important sources of financial support for Pakistan. And But I think what we've seen is the, the flagship initiative, CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which was launched a decade ago as part of uh, uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, has stalled in recent years. And and some of this comes down to Pakistan's precarious security situation. Some of this is a result of China becoming more risk averse in its outbound investments. Uh, And we've also seen a backlash of sorts within within Pakistan itself. You know, a third of Pakistan's external debt is owed to China. Uh, And and CPEC projects have also been subject to delays and faced allegations over corruption. And this is actually one of the reasons that contributed to Nawaz Sharif's downfall previously and fueled the rise of Imran Khan. Uh, essentially feeding into this narrative that China is inflicting so-called debt traps through its opaque mm. lending practices or predatory economic activities. That being said, I think China and Pakistan both remain important to each other for strategic reasons. Uh, Pakistan needs investment in infrastructure that China can provide. Uh, China needs energy and uh, a transport corridor linking its western region with the Indian Ocean. China remains concerned about security in its west, and Pakistan and Afghanistan are key to this. And more fundamentally, I think both countries see their relationship as a bulwark uh, against India. 
Fazana, would you agree with that on this relationship with China? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, uh, in a sense, you know, the, the, the relationship with China historically was, of course, forged and strengthened under under uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, Benazir Bhutto's father, way back uh, in the late 60s and, uh, and 70s, and then was embraced by uh, Nawaz Sharif and you know his sort of commitment to big infrastructure projects in Pakistan financed by China. And it, it has to be said that Imran Khan himself was rather reticent about that relationship. But because I think it enjoyed the support and backing of Pakistan's military, Imran Khan was rather guarded in his choice of words. Do remember that it was quite a um, political scandal when uh, President Xi had to cancel his trip to Pakistan because Imran Khan was staging street protests against uh, the then incumbent uh, Sharif uh, government. And it was a source of immense embarrassment. And it's, it's interesting to me as I read through the manifestos of the political parties in the run-up to these elections that, that uh, Sharif's party or Sharif himself has has vowed to strengthen that 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 relationship with China. Exactly how it plays out in terms of Pakistan's relations with the United States is, of course, going to be quite a challenge. So, Madiha, do, do you think we're seeing two new groups emerging—a sort of U.S.-India alliance, if I can put it that way—and a China-Pakistan one? You know, Pakistan has said quite repeatedly that it would rather not choose sides between between the US and China and you know it's it's tried to you know we've argued that Pakistan is one of a set of of countries that are sort of the new non-aligned countries if you will that doesn't mean that they have equal relationships with both the the US and China but they want to maintain relationships with both those countries because they find advantages to those bilateral relationships. And so, you know, the kind of infrastructure and development, the sort of investment that uh, China can offer, the U.S. cannot. But the U.S. obviously has huge sway over Pakistan's uh, debt servicing in terms of uh, the the IMF. Pakistan needs uh, the U.S. as well as, as China. What I will say is that the growing closeness of the U.S. with India certainly impacts Pakistan's calculus. And it pushes Pakistan further into uh, the the Chinese camp. It would rather not be pushed as much (laughs) as it is being pushed because of that growing U.S. closeness with India. And so it watches the sort of the embrace, the U.S.'s embrace of India with with wariness and then, you know, uh, uh, makes sure uh, that uh, it's steadfast in its, its relationship. With China, so I think this is not, you know, there there are hurdles to the the Pakistan China relationship. It's uh, not seamless, and it's not a foregone conclusion. But uh, you know, these relationships affect each other. I think the the U.S. China competition uh, rivalry uh, really affects how uh, obviously the U.S. interacts with India, and that in turn uh, really affects how Pakistan sees itself playing its cards. Just to add, I mean, I find it interesting that of all of Pakistan's neighbors, you know, relations appear to be most stable with India at the moment. We've seen frictions with Iran. We've seen frictions with Afghanistan. And I think a, a, Nawash, a potential a Nawaz Sharif government has raised hopes of a, of a potential rapprochement in the bilateral relationship. Uh, India-Pakistan relations have historically uh, improved when he's been in power. But this is also Nawaz Sharif's Achilles heel. 
the military has tended to pull the rug out from underneath him every time he's tried to put out an olive branch to, to, to India during his previous terms in power. And I think another key watch point will be to see what are the actions of a third-term Modi government in India, which appears to be a near certainty, and also the status of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, which is going to be important to the in, in the context of the India-Pakistan relationship. So I think the relationship could go, I don't think it's a certainty to say that uh, there's a U.S.-India camp versus a Pakistan-other camp. Can I step in for a minute? Just say that, of course, uh, while Sharif himself, again, in his manifesto, has made peace with India one of his top priorities, I think it is significant that just last week, the army chief, while addressing uh, students from a variety of private and public universities, declared in no uncertain terms that there could be no reconciliation with India because India has never reconciled itself to the existence of, of Pakistan. And I wonder whether thereby he was not laying down some red lines for Sharif, that mind what you say, because relations with India are the army's prerogative. Really interesting last point. Chita, your last, the last word on this? No, I completely agree. I mean, uh, and I mean, and the remarks that were made by the army chief were not just about India. He also referred to Iran and Afghanistan. So he has. It is clear that he is putting down some red lines in the and essentially sending out a warning to whoever is the next prime minister, whichever Sharif that is, potentially. <laughs> Whichever. On that note, if the election happens, we will obviously bring you on our website all the kind of results and the discussion of what that means. But we're going to have to stop there. I realize as we're talking, I've had this, this flickering mental tableau of all these leaders are sort of exultant and expansive at the height of their power in Pakistan and then sulking and rather fed up when the musical chairs deposited them back in London in their apartments in W1 and W2. Anyway, we will, uh, we will leave that image. So with that, we are going to have to wrap up. And a very big thank you to my guests, Maria Afsal, Chitaj Bajpayee, Farzana Sheikh. Do follow them all on Twitter or X, whichever name you prefer, but do follow them. Their details will be in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or major platforms and through our social media. So please do like, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really helps us and to read more from all our experts or to find out more about our events, don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org and you can find the work of all our programs there, including our Asia-Pacific program. Goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. See you next week.